This is The Conversation on Hawaii Public Radio. I'm Catherine Cruz. Governor Josh Green begins his term with a healthy budget surplus thanks to federal COVID funds. But what will be his spending priorities? HPR's Sabrina Bowden here to tell us more. Good morning. Good morning, Catherine. So on Monday, Governor Josh Green presented a basic $19.4 billion general fund budget that'll span from fiscal years 2024 and 2025. And since it's such a quick turnaround from being first sworn in just two weeks ago and having to present an executive budget, a lot of the basic work was done by former Governor David Ige's administration. So that would be general housekeeping and operations. So what Governor Josh Green did yesterday was really outline some of his priorities and share some concept goals he was advocate some concept goals that he will be advocating for in this upcoming legislative session. Green really wants to tackle the healthcare shortage and he's going to do that through expanding loan forgiveness from doctors and nurses to also include social workers and school psychologists to hopefully create more allure for those in those professions to come move here or make it easier to live here. You all saw what happened a couple days ago when the plane crashed going from Maui to Big Island and we had to have that pause on uh, transport of patients between islands. Why do we have uh, a crisis? Well, because we don't have enough healthcare providers in some of the rural parts of our state. And the only way to overcome that is to actually solve the problem. Temporarily, of course, we stepped up. We put Black Hawk helicopters out there. We got new jets that are coming in temporarily as our people heal and deal with this crisis. But long term, we need to have doctors in each of the counties that are adequate to cover all the services. And we have to support the hospitals that would otherwise really function and not require transport. So a couple things. We're about 600 doctors short at all times. During the pandemic, we were 700 nurses short. and We had to fly them in. It cost us like $70 million during COVID. If we just had enough nurses for far less money, we wouldn't have had to do that. If we had adequate doctors across the state, we would have had even fewer transfers. So here's what you're gonna see. Hawaii State Loan Repayment Program, which already exists, we created this a few years ago. Our proposal is to put $10 million into it in fiscal year 24 and $20 million in fiscal 25, because the first year it'll be these new scholars, second year they'll be first and second year scholars, and then so on. It takes about five years to pay off loans at this rate. And while these last few years of the pandemic have taken a toll on the economy, federal dollars and continued tourism has put the state in a pretty good spot. And this will lead to a pretty large surplus at the end of this fiscal year, which will give Green and his team the opportunity to build out the budget. And during his campaign and during these last few weeks as governor, Green has been pushing to tackle the health care crisis head on. A housing plan is being developed, and that's something that's not yet incorporated into this budget. The surplus will be $1.9 billion at the end of this coming fiscal year. Now, you know, before we get too excited about that, we're going to have a lot of other priorities that go into the budget. We're going to have recommendations from the legislature. My directors are going to give their best uh, recommendations to augment what they do, because we're going to care about people. The one instruction that I gave my cabinet was be compassionate and provide caring support for people. And that will take on a lot of shapes, but it's going to cost some money. So a couple of things that are not in our budget, and then I can answer questions. Um, we don't have additional resources yet on housing because we're going to put together a comprehensive housing plan, which we hope to launch completely uh, on or around the day that I'm asked to give the state of the state address. So we still want to be thoughtful about that. There's been a lot of input out there for the past several years. We want to make sure in addition to the DHHL money, the Hawaiian homelands money of $600 million, that we do a lot more affordable housing. And the 
And the budget also releases a lot of money to upkeep or upkeep or renovate schools, fund positions at the University of Hawaii, and add $15 million to the state's Ohana Zones program for homeless services. So going into this upcoming legislative session, Green also discussed some concepts his administration is planning to introduce. One of them may be a plan to charge a climate impact fee to tourists, or another one has to do with the cost of living. And during his inauguration speech earlier this month, Green spoke about wanting to cut the state's general excise tax on food and medicine, and he continued that yesterday. It's simply too expensive to live in Hawaii. Uh, right now with inflation, it is doubly expensive, so we'll be doing a couple things. Because people are living paycheck to paycheck, uh, now more than ever, now more certainly than before the pandemic, we're going to propose some tax incentives to help lower uh, lower income families and individuals survive. So we will make investments in those individuals. Either we're going to be able to get rid of some of the taxes that are more onerous, that's the general excise tax on food and medicine, or we will target tax credits directly or even tax refunds directly to people that are really struggling to pay for food and medicine, and we'll do that through the tax code. So if you're really um, if you're really struggling, your family, if you've got a couple kids, you can't afford healthy food, that money go directly to you. We're not trying to give tax breaks to people who are very wealthy. All the people I talk to want to make sure it goes to people who need it most. And so yesterday during that uh, press conference, Governor Green also announced the release of about $50 million in grant and aid, and that was due to different interpretation than the EGA administration had. So that's over 180 new nonprofits, community groups, as well as state um, entities that are going to get more money to do some more like social service work. Yeah, and I was hearing that some of these nonprofits were really kind of knocking on the door like, hey, where's our money? Mm-hmm. And and I guess, yeah, the EGA administration had some uh, opinion on um, what was the best way to proceed. And, and obviously with the new AG, I think that's been... Yes, um, uh, the new AG, uh, Ann Lopez, she has a broader interpretation of these state laws of where the state can allocate and uh, release the monies to. So some of the nonprofits that were included include um, the Blood Bank of Hawaii and Aloha United Way. Right, right. And so, yeah, they definitely are looking uh, to use that money to help out with their operations. Mm-hmm. All right. Well, thank you so much, Sabrina. Thank you, Catherine. We've been talking with HPR's Sabrina Bowden. You can read more of her stories on our website, hawaiipublicradio.org. This is The Conversation on statewide, member-supported Hawaii Public Radio. Coming up, your Backyard Quiz. For today's quiz, we intend to dispel the myth that if you dig a hole deep enough in your backyard, 
you'll end up in China. That's because Hawaii's antipode, the geographic point on the Earth's surface that is diametrically opposite of it, or in layman's terms, the spot on the other side of the world, is not China. Geographers estimate that only 15% of the Earth's land mass is antipodal to other land. It's because oceans cover more than half of our world. So if you wanted to drill a tunnel underneath your house in a straight line to the opposite side of the planet, chances are you're going to end up in the ocean. One would think Hawaii's antipode would also be in some body of water, but it's not. So if we were to dig a hole straight through the earth, what country would we end up in? Call 808-941-3689 or 877-941-3689. First one to get it right wins a reusable HPR tote bag. Support for the Backyard Quiz comes from Nareet Hawaii, which is committed to supporting nonprofits that help to strengthen the community and help underserved families, such as Hawaii Literacy. NareetHawaii.com. Every step of the way, the January 6th committee has been a history-making congressional investigation. Most congressional investigations end with a report. They don't end with lawmakers sitting up at a dais telling the Justice Department what crimes a former president committed and how he should be investigated. I'm Michael Barbaro. That's today on The Daily from The New York Times. Beginning this afternoon at 1.30. Support for HPR comes from the Honolulu Museum of Art with the immersive exhibition, Rebecca Louise Law, Awakening, Exploring the Human Connection to Nature. Now on view, details at honolulumuseum.org. Civil Beats' Christina Jedra joins us for today's reality check. She is a story about how Hawaii's congressional delegation is stepping up the pressure on the military about the latest spill at the Red Hill fuel storage facility. Good morning, Christina. Hi, Catherine. It's good to be here. Yes. So we're not just talking, though, about the spill that, uh, you know, we also pictures of, of, of the cleanup, but this is a different spill that you uh, got wind of, an older spill. That's right. So uh, I discovered that two years ago, there was a prior spill of the same kind of firefighting foam at Red Hill. Uh, It happened in a different part of the facility. This is an underground pump house that's um, basically right on Pearl Harbor, but it's connected to the Red Hill tanks through a system of pipelines and tunnels. Um, And so this pump house uh, was flooded with AFFF, this firefighting foam, and water. Um, and so there was this foamy liquid on the floor, uh, which is made of concrete, and the military, you know, cleaned it up um, and didn't tell regulators that this had happened. Um, DOH, the, the health department, was actually scheduled to do an inspection that very same week, and they said the Navy steered them away from that room. And then later, when DOH asked about whether um, the firefighting foam had been released, the Navy said no. So now. Our federal lawmakers are asking um, the Government Accountability Office to look into whether the Navy inappropriately withheld information. Yeah, I mean, was it widely known or what? 
that is interesting. Um, and so uh, what else uh, did our delegation say uh, um, in, in calling for this? Well, they're, they're asking for, um, you know, information on that prior leak, but also the more recent one that, if you recall, um, released an estimated 1,300 gallons of firefighting foam concentrate at Red Hill uh, earlier this month. So they're, they're really looking for answers as to whether the Navy um, has any deficiencies in its practices and procedures when it comes to this firefighting foam, whether other sites in Hawaii that were contaminated by this same material were remediated, and what the Navy can do to pursue um, more environmentally friendly firefighting foam alternatives. Um, so basically, the ingredients in this firefighting foam are highly toxic. Uh, the EPA said earlier this year they're even more dangerous than previously thought. Um, they can, they're, they're suspected of causing a host of health issues from cancer to liver damage, developmental delays, um, immune system impacts. Uh, they're really nasty stuff. And even the manufacturer of these chemicals, the 3M Corporation, just said today that they're going to stop making them as of 2025. So, um, you can kind of get a sense of how serious it is to have these chemicals in the environment, especially because they don't um, they don't degrade in the environment. They really stick around forever, which is why they're called forever chemicals. And a point of clarification, I mean, I know that they've been referring to the spill as a, a foam, um, but um, I understand that it's a the foam concentrate that, um, or the concentrate of the foam that actually spilled that 1,300 gallons. Right, that spill earlier this month was a concentrate. Um, so it's sort of even worse than if it had been foam. The foam happens when it's mixed with water and released, um, you know, when it's pressurized. Um, but this was kind of that raw ingredient that came straight from the, the foam concentrate storage tank. Yeah, so it's interesting. I mean, all that um, massive uh, cleanup with the the barrels and barrels of, of the contaminated soil and, and uh, the culvert material. Um, yeah, that, that makes sense. Maybe that's why it's been so, um, you know, thorough, because it's a concentrate. Right. It's a very serious thing, and even the Navy has acknowledged that this was uh, a really bad situation. Um, and so we do know that, you know, they've said they're working on cleaning up that most recent leak. Uh, they've provided less information on how they responded to the 2020 release that I reported on. All they would say is that they, you know, removed the contaminated material and disposed of it. They did not answer questions as to how they disposed of it or where that material is now. And I also think it's, it's important to note that that underground pump house is made of concrete, which is so there is a possibility that liquid released onto it can seep through. And again, these chemicals don't biodegrade. You know, that's sort of the silver lining, you could say, about the fuel crisis is that the fuel is terrible. It got into the aquifer, but at least there are microbes that eat fuel and sort of make them make the fuel molecules diminish over time, is what experts have told me. The bad thing about the firefighting foam is that it, it's going to stick around for a really yeah. long time. So there Bad are stuff. concerns now about what that prior leak means for the area around Pearl Harbor. Well, let's hope uh, we get to the bottom of this. I know the military says they hope to have an invest uh, investigative report completed by January. So we'll see what they say. But thank you so much, Christina.
Thanks for having me. That was reporter Christina Jedra with today's Reality Check. You can read the story online at civilbeat.org. Thunderstorms packing heavy rain and hail pounded areas of the Big Island on Monday. The wind and rain were an especially high concern for those whose land was impacted by the 2021 Mana Road fire. It was the biggest wildfire in the island's history, burning over 40,000 acres and claiming two homes. It also left some small family-owned farms and ranches without ground cover and more susceptible to damage from strong winds and flooding. The aftermath of the Mono Road fire is what prompted a group of Hawaiian homestead leaseholders to file a lawsuit against Parker Ranch last week. They allege the ranch is responsible for starting the fire, a fire that, according to the complaint, altered the physical and chemical structure of the soil and root systems, making it unhabitable for livestock and unworkable for growing crops. Bridget Morgan Bickerton is the managing partner of Bickerton Law Group and one of the attorneys representing the plaintiffs in the case. The Conversations Russell Subiano got the chance to talk to her about the claims. Can you talk about who the plaintiffs are? Our plaintiffs, our several families, couples, numerous of our families have children. One of them has four children. And they are Hawaiian homesteaders who live downwind of Parker Ranch and had acres and acres of land destroyed by this fire. So they're ranchers, farmers, people who work the land, people who have put a lot into the land their whole lives. And can you talk a little bit about why they believe Parker Ranch is at fault? I know it's covered in the complaint. Can you share with our listeners what they're alleging? Well, the report, you know, from the fire department when it came out and did its investigation explains that the fire started as a result of a Parker Ranch contractor cutting with a with a saw, cutting metal, working on a fence for Parker Ranch on Parker Ranch land. Parker Ranch, as a landowner, carries with it numerous responsibilities to not create nuisances, to not allow nuisances such as a massive fire to escape its property and affect other people's property. In the process of cutting this fencing material, Parker Ranch was required to have certain precautions in place. OSHA regulations require, for example, there to be fire extinguishers or a way to put out a fire if you're working with, you know, instrumentalities that have carry a fire. And this was an incredibly windy, dry day, July 30th, 2021. And so the conditions were such that certain fire extinguishing methods and mechanisms should have been in place. And Parker Ranch, as a landowner, was responsible for that. It's a duty that was non-delegable that it cannot just impose on the subcontractor. And I know from experience that that side of the island being very dry, a lot of peely grass in a lot of different areas. In my high school days down at the beach, I've seen someone flick a cigarette out of their car and it hit the peely grass. And I've seen that fire just spread like crazy. From reading the complaint, it sounds like started from a spark it just caught fire and and got huge from there. That's correct. It started from, you know, sawing a spark because of the conditions, the dry conditions and the wind. It got out of control really, really fast. I think the Hawaii Fire Department report relates that the contractor who called to report the fire described that it it was probably went, went from covering a 20 by 20 foot area to about 10 acres just during the the call that that he had made to the fire department. So it spread really, really fast. 
this valley is is a valley that is like a wind tunnel and wind you know blows down through that valley through the two mountains there and you know these are the conditions that Parker Ranch is aware of and that the contractor were aware of and they just they should have had safeguards in place to make sure that any any sparks that could have turned into a fire would not grow to this massive, massive fire that, you know, like you said, it is the largest recorded fire in Hawaii history. Has Parker Ranch responded to the complaint yet? Not yet. We just filed last week, so they're not required to respond for 20 days from when we serve them. And what do the plaintiffs hope to accomplish with the lawsuit? Are they looking for compensation? Are they looking for Parker Ranch to maybe make some changes to their protocols? They're looking for, they want to be restored to the position they were in, you know, before this happened. One of our families lost their entire home and they had two little kids and that was their way of life. And now that's gone and they would like to be able to rebuild their home. A lot of what this lawsuit about is that the land itself, because the fire burns so hot and burned the roots underneath the ground, the soil is not coming back like it was. And we're 17, 18 months out from the fire and the land itself has been destroyed and it needs to be remediated and restored. Otherwise it's not usable, it's not workable. Cattle can't graze, people can't use the land like they did before. And our clients are looking to be able to use their land in the way that they used it before, be able to bring their cattle back, be able to grow the vegetation that was growing on it. And so, their, their lives were really turned upside down from this. And to this day, they suffer from the dust. The dust is a huge problem uh, that, that resulted from the fire. And they live with dust every single day. I was up there last week and went on to uh, one, of the, one of the parcels and had to wear a mask and goggles. It, the dust just, it's suffocating. And, and our clients live with this every single day with kids they're inhaling this, they're breathing it, and something something really does need to be done to restore that land. And I read in the complaint, it's mentioned that some of the plaintiffs have been displaced from their homes or were forced to relocate. If they were to win the lawsuit, would that allow them to return to their homestead or return to Hawaii if they've moved out of state? Well, fortunately, no one has, none of our clients have been forced to move out of state couple of them have had to move away from Waimea and have had to move to Hilo, but they would like to be able to rebuild and, and return. You know, this was land that they plan to spend the, the rest of their lives on and raise their kids on. So they would like the funds to do that. If they were to receive compensation for the damage that they that was incurred, and you've talked about the extent of what the fire did, I also heard reports of a lot of the irrigation systems being destroyed because of the way they had to fight the fire when they were building fire breaks and, and they ended up destroying a lot of the irrigation. I think in, in addition to the, the inability to farm the land, there's a lot of structure and infrastructure damage that needs to be repaired. If they were to receive compensation for the damage, does that money go toward reviving their land, reviving their farms and putting them back in, in the state that they were before the fire? that's all they want. And that's what they're trying to do. I don't think anyone in our group of plaintiffs is trying to get wealthy off of this. They're not trying to bankrupt Parker Ranch. They just, they would like to be restored to the position they were in before this all happened. 
And in order to do that, a lot of structural things are going to have to happen. There's remediation that's going to have to happen. And so, sure, absolutely, that's, that's what the plaintiffs want is to put whatever they're able to recover back into the land and back into their livelihoods because they lost so much. Any last thoughts or anything else that that you might want to share with listeners? Sure. I think our clients, the plaintiffs, would want people to know that they did not file this suit lightly and they, they don't take this lightly. But because of sort of silence on the part of Parker Ranch and the hesitance to really take this fully seriously and to really acknowledge responsibility in all of this, we got to the point and they got to the point where they felt like they were forced to to file suit. And sometimes, you know, someone is ripped off at a store. Sometimes someone is injured in another way. These plaintiffs' entire lives have been turned upside down and they've been living that way for the last 17 months. Parker Ranch, on the other hand, I, I just just digging up, you know, old coverage on this fire, had the resources and the ability to ground a team of cowboys and move their 2,500 cattle and save their cattle and work to save their land. And no one from Parker Ranch has reached out to our plaintiffs, to the plaintiffs, and offered to do the same thing or even apologized. And so for them, it's, it's devastating and it's been really, really sad. You'll, you'll hear their stories and you've heard some of them because this is their community. This is their home and they've poured their own lives into not only their land, but a lot of them have family members who've worked for Parker Ranch. And, you know, it's, it's just a really, really sad thing. It's a, it's, it's something really needs to be done to help them because they, they do need help. Thank you so much for your time, Bridget. Really appreciate you talking to me. Thank you. We appreciate you having us. That was Bridget, um, Attorney Bridget Morgan Bickerton talking with HPR's Russell Subiono about a lawsuit recently filed by Hawaiian homestead leaseholders against Parker Ranch. HPR reached out to Parker Ranch for comment. They have yet to respond. The ranch did make a post on its Facebook page on December 15th stating that Parker Ranch does not comment on threatened or pending litigation. Support for HPR comes from C.S. Woe & Sons, furnishing homes in Hawaii since 1909, featuring a design team offering personalized consultations to help bring dreams to life, online at cswoandsons.com. Each week, New Dimensions explores the social, political, scientific, environmental, and spiritual frontiers with some of today's foremost social innovators, thinkers, scientists, and creative artists. Hi, I'm Mark Wolin, author of It Didn't Start With You. Next time on New Dimensions, I'll be talking about how inherited family trauma shapes who we are and how to end the cycle. Beginning Sunday morning at 11. Support for Hawaii Public Radio comes from Outrigger Hotels and Resorts, committed to guest and employee safety, while also featuring the Malama Hawaii Experience, offering hands-on cultural learning in Malama Ka'aina, caring for the land, outrigger.com. The 
year of the Limu is drawing to a close, and groups celebrating the community efforts to elevate the important place seaweed has in our marine environment recently gathered at the Bishop Museum to mark the event. Among those in attendance, members of the Waimanalo Limu Hui. It will be one of the beneficiaries of a federal grant awarded to Hawaii Pacific University's Oceanic Institute that hopefully will be a boost to its efforts to restore the Limu patches on the windward side of Oahu. We spent part of the morning with the Hui as volunteers learn about how to make limu lei. It begins with pounding lahala to make cordage. So how do we appreciate what we're doing comes from just hands-on at every single stage of the, the process, right? So it's not just to come in and celebrate. A lot of people, they just like show up for plant the trees, but nobody come back for water. Yeah, so same idea here. You want to make le? Go start over there where you guys got to make your own string, right? And then growing the limu. Like there's so much back of the house stuff that happens in order for these things to take place for people. We want to make sure everyone understands the whole process not just the processes that you get to celebrate when you guys come in, right? Ikaiko Rogerson is head of the Waimanalo Limuhui. He was out at Kayona Beach early on this particular weekend. The group begins at 8 a.m. sharp. Members have gotten up extra early to set up tents and chairs and have hauled the bins of limu from Sea Life Park. The Waimanalo Limuhui started in November of 2017. It was the wishes of some of our kupuna in the community to see limu as abundant as it used to be when they were kiki here in Waimanalo. So we decided to start the Waimanalo Limuhui to start restoring some of what once was as far as limu goes in Waimanalo Bay. And what type of limu do you generally plant out here? Well, according to some of the kupuna, we know a few species that were prevalent here in Waimanalo. And if you look at some of the street names, they tell us, you know, and the, or the name of the wind here is Lipu'upu'u, and that was the type of limu that used to be here. So we try to get what we know used to be here. I mean, I understand that the conditions may no longer be exactly the same as it used to be in the 50s or 60s, but we're trying to regrow the same varieties that used to be here before. And the limu is produced where? So the Waimanalo Limu Hui has a partnership with Sea Life Park here in Waimanalo. And they're allowing us to use some of their space, the seawater and stuff, to be able to grow our own limu stock. And growing it here in the community is important because the limu that we're growing is already ma to the seawater here in Waimanalo, rather than getting it from somewhere else like Anuinui Fisheries on San Island or somewhere like the, the limu already knows the salt water here and the content here so we know that it's going to have a better chance of survival when we outplant them. And so what's involved in the uh, process when the group gathers here? So when the group gathers here we'll do opening circle we have whatever limu we have growing in the tank and it's seasonal so it could be some different types of limu. We often teach cordage because we use cordage to be able to make the limule. The cordage we're using today is made of ulehala or the root of the uh, pandanus or hala tree that we pound out and make cordage. So we're going to be using that today to intertwine them with limu. Somebody will probably go out and pick some hand-sized rocks to be able to tie those limule around. They're pretty much an anchor to keep them from floating away and then outplant them right here into the channel. And the hopes are that the 
the subores that are on all of this limo will spread downwind and down current and throughout the rest of Wamanalo Bay instead of concentrating so much here at Kayona where it's easier to host the workday. And then some of your members also work with restoring the pond nearby. So in 2018, we got the permit to restore Pahono, which is uh, the only known turtle pond here in Wamana, or in the state. What we do is on quarterly workdays, we, we usually host both a limo and a Pahono restoration workday. And prior to COVID, we would have up to 300 people in the community showing up just to work on limo and Pahono. Originally, when we were out planting limo, we would plant them on the remnants of what used to be Pahono. So we figured it was only right if we were going to outplant them there on the remnants that we would take care of Pahono as well. I've seen it built up, but we have rough waves. <laughs> they get all knocked down again. And so where we're situated here in Waimanalo is on the east side. We have no protection of any sort. We're sort of in the lee of Rabbit Island, which I'm assuming was what why the Kupuna built it, where they built it. But other than that, when the winter comes, like we get winter swells that come from the north and take some of the wall down. Uh, for us, we don't mind so much. It gives us more opportunity to build and teach others the practice of uhau humupuaku or Hawaiian dry stacking. HPU and uh, the Oceanic Institute, I know, just got a grant and they're trying to figure out if some of the, the limu that they have uh, can be given to you folks. You know, they're, they're trying to help out with the, the fish ponds uh, and this project here. How much of a boost will that be, you think, for your efforts? The Waimanalo Limuhui is only one of three projects that I know that are doing active restoration. We're the only one here on Oahu. Uh, there's one on Kauai and one on Lanai. And Uncle Wali Ito provides all of us at least the limu stock, not everyone. We're the only ones that have the opportunity to build our, I mean, to grow our own limu here in Waimanalo, but the others don't. So uncle provides that stock to those other projects. Um, he's getting older. So by having somebody else that can help to provide limu or grow limu for these projects, it al allow for others to be able to have this type of opportunity in their own communities. What do you think about this effort? I mean, to, to try and connect with the, the different local groups, you know, I mean, I know, you know, on Molokai, when we talk about the fish ponds, I know uh, Walter Riddy says, oh, we, would, we need help growing mullet to stock the ponds, you know, and uh, HPU is doing that. So, you know, I mean, hopefully that there can be these connections made so that we can get these fish ponds back up again. Actually, our, our nonprofit is Kikulanui Wamanalo, and the Wamanalo Limuhui is one of the programs of Kikulanui Wamanalo. but Kikulanui Wamanalo or NO for short, is part of an organization called KUA. It stands for KUA Aina Ulu Awamo, um, and they host the larger statewide Limo organization. So at least once a year, we all get to connect. We're fortunate to be part of their second network, which is the local IA network as well, since we take care of Pahono. So we're able to, you know, gather and be able to see all of these other practitioners, see what everyone else is doing. Uh, there is a project down at Waikalua local fish pond in Kaneohe where Kai Fox has a grant that he's got a small hatchery that he's trying to work on taking water from the fish pond, growing out some mullet to be able to help restock all of these other fish ponds throughout the state. And if that's successful, then that's something that we could 
probably replicate on other islands so that we're not transporting fish from one island to another, but each island will be more self-sustainable in that manner and be able to grow their own stock to restock all of their fish ponds. Same goes with Limo and HPU. By being able to have all of these resources, we would be able to help restock them as well. It must make you feel good, though, to see the progress that has made, you know, just since you started doing this. Like, we're astonished every time people come out. Like, we've had people come from the Big Island. We've had stories done on us and people come from, from the mainland to be able to participate in some of these restoration efforts. And so we're amazed that the word gets out and people are traveling just to come to our events. And there's often times where Kupuna from Big Island are coming to find out how can they learn what we're doing to be able to do that in their own community. But access to Limo is definitely a game changer. Without it, doing a Limo restoration project is almost impossible. We have been hearing from Ikaika Rogerson with the Waimanalo Limu Hui. And in this year of the Limu, we salute the many hands who come to volunteer and those who teach the greater community how to help restore the nearshore ecosystem. Check for links on how to volunteer on the conversation page of our website later today. It's time now for your backyard quiz answer, and we're talking antipodes, or the spot directly on the opposite side of the world from where you are. Since oceans cover most of our planet, geographers estimate there's only 4% of the Earth's surface where someone can start on land, travel to that spot's antipode, and end up on land. Some of the largest antipodal land masses are the Malay Archipelago, which is on the opposite side of the planet from the Amazon Basin, and East China and Mongolia, which is on the other side of the world from Chile and Argentina. Here in Hawaii, our antipode is a landmass, not too bad for being a tiny chain of islands in the middle of the largest ocean. And that landmass is the second largest continent, Africa. So if you were to draw a straight line through the Earth's core from Hawaii to the other side of the globe, you'd end up in Botswana. Unless you live on the north shore of Kauai, then it would be the neighboring country of Namibia. Uh, those are the answers to today's quiz. And congrats to Jane Earl from Kapahulu. Uh, first time caller. She won on her first try. Uh, welcome to the uh, uh, Backyard Quiz Club. If you have an idea for uh, a quiz, send it to talkback at hawaiipublicradio.org. Support education reporting on HPR. Anybody who lives past Hanalei, it's all single-lane bridges. Kapua Chandler is the school director of Namahana School, a new charter school based in Kilauea. Getting approved is just the start for Namahana. They still have to construct their facilities and get a long-term agreement with the state to operate. But having a nearby school and the hope to create future leaders for Kauai's North Shore community is worth the effort. I think the power of our school and the beauty of our school is to be able to be one of those foundations in the community that really holds a place for the future generations and it's really just a foundation that future generations will continue to build and build and build on. Chandler expects the school to open its doors in 2025. Donate today at hawaiipublicradio.org. 
It was over a century ago that 15 Filipino plantation workers, called cicadas, arrived in Honolulu on December 20, 1906. For the next four decades, the Hawaiian Sugar Planters Association would heavily recruit Ilocanos from the Philippines to work in pineapple and sugar plantations throughout the islands. Pauilo resident Romel de la Cruz, who was a descendant of cicadas, shared family stories with the conversations newly in song. His maternal grandfather was the first to arrive in 1918, followed by six uncles. His father finally arrived in 1946 with the last wave of cicadas. My father, Benigno de la Cruz, came with the last batch in 1946. 6,000 of them were recruited and brought in right after World War II. In anticipation of the strike that was called by the ILWU, in fact, they were brought in as strike breakers. But my dad said that while on board the ship, the USS Manawili, they were actually recruited already to be members of the union. They were told that there was going to be a 